if you look back to December 2007, and that was the first month of the Great Recession, the recession that accompanied the fall of Lehman Brothers, uh, the rate of growth of full-time jobs at the time was 0.7%, so a tenth higher than where we are today. A lot of people blame the weather. It really wasn't a weather thing. We, we went back and looked at the history to the 1970s, and there wasn't anything extraordinary about this last January, even though it, it was cold. We did see a collapse in the work week. That's never a good sign. If, if the decline in the number of hours worked was to be equated to the number of jobs lost simply because of the income that was foregone, because hours were cut to the extent that they were, we would have seen a print of negative 550,000. So again, um, the headlines right now are extraordinarily deceiving. On this episode of the What the Finance podcast, I have the pleasure of working on Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle is the CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research. Uh, she's also the author of Fed Up and a Global Thought Leader in Monetary Policy, Economics and Finance with nine years experience at uh, the Dallas Fed. So Danielle, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's great to be here. How are you? Very well, thanks. Uh, we'll just talk about how uh, Powell had a surprise interview <laughs> last night, which is uh, on Sunday, which is quite interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I guess sort of my first question um, if someone were to just look at the markets, they would think, wow, everything's amazing, you know, all time highs, the economy must be doing great. Uh, but obviously, that, that isn't the case. So, yeah, from your perspective, what are you seeing in the economy? Well, I mean, um, the best word to describe what we're seeing is, is cross currents. We're seeing we're seeing cross currents between what's originally reported, the revisions that come subsequent to that, um, what we're hearing from the private sector, what we're hearing from official government data, uh, what one survey in government data says that completely contradicts what the other is saying. So it's a very difficult time right now to read the tea leaves. Uh, you don't know what you're reading today, if it's going to be revised away tomorrow, that's certainly been the case, whether you're talking about GDP revisions or retail sales or, or headline payrolls. And so you have to do better at following what's happening on, on the ground, which is exactly what I'm trying to do. And why is there that, that disconnect? Is it just the, is this abnormal compared to the past or have, have things changed? Um, you know, it's it's normal to see a lot of noise and inflection points, and and that typically is when when, when you see uh, revisions, when you see the birth death model that's inside of one of the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, surveys. It's it's not abnormal for what we're seeing, but that doesn't make it any easier for investors. If you look back at some of the recessions that the National Bureau of Economic Research has dated, they've actually gone back and time stamped recessions when it looks like the unemployment rate is at a very low level, but all of the other in the aggregate data that they're seeing add up to something that just doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, these are veteran economists who are the arbiters, the people who decide when recession has and has not started. They understand the re revisionary nature of non-farm payrolls and that they're the most lagging of all data for that very reason. And so sometimes it wouldn't be surprising for me to see the NBER come in and say, given the depth of the revisions to prior month's data, it looks like recession started in October of 2023. Okay. So in, you, in your opinion, we're already in a recession and then things are sort of starting to get, get worse. Is that what you're 
Yes. I mean, so many of the things that they look at, uh, whether you're talking about um, inflation adjusted income after government transfers, you know, that's already turned negative. That is typically one of your biggest signposts and one of the laggards, by the way, you could say the same about industrial production. So there are many metrics right now that suggest that, that even though Jay Powell chair of the fed is going to follow what the headlines are saying, which is, but really is rattling the bond market's cage right now. So he's going to continue, press on with high for long, even though that's the case, other indicators suggest that he is tightening or staying tight or staying too high uh, into the teeth of recession. And do you think he is going to, because as you said, there's a bit of a divide between what the markets think are going to happen, I guess what the Fed and Powell think he's he's going to do. So do you think, um, yeah, I guess, where do you think it's going to go? Uh, So I think that since the day of December the 14th, the actual day of the pivot, when the markets went, woohoo, we're going to seven rate cuts. It's going to be great. Every single one in in 2024. Uh, I, I think they have since dialed back their expectations. Now we're closer to four, if not the three that he communicated again on 60 Minutes saying it's just going to be three in 2024. Maybe we see the first rate hike in, in May. It might be as late as June. There might not be a rate cut on September the 18th. Uh, that's a toss up. That's the FOMC right before U.S. elections. And history dictates that sometimes there are moves at that meeting. Sometimes there are not. So it, we'll just have to wait and see how the headline data, it doesn't matter that we haven't had a single full-time job created since last February, a year ago, but we're going to have to wait and see how the headline data are reported to try and track Powell's next move. Okay, that makes sense. And do you think that is that a mistake on his part? Because it sounds like the economy is going to decline and it's going to be a risk of things getting worse. Well, yes and no. And I'm not trying to make excuses, make excuses for Powell, except to say that he really is determined to uh, to put a dagger through the heart of the Fed put. He can't do that unless he holds on for longer uh, than anybody expects. He can't do that if he starts to pull back from from shrinking the balance sheet. He really does have to press on in order to buy himself time to move forward with some more strenuous regulations uh, being imposed on the conventional banking system that then bleed into uh, stronger regulations for the non-banking sector. Okay, that makes sense. And I I guess if I compare it to the the other great power at the moment, China, they have tried to regulate some of their banking and other factors and it's been been disaster for them from a financial perspective as well as an asset perspective. So obviously the US is quite a different economy, but do you think there's a risk that maybe they're concerned that if they were to go too far on regulations, maybe tighten too much, something similar could happen in the US? Well, the the actual implementation of of Basel III endgame would not really come until 2026 or beyond. So when I say that Powell's trying to buy time, he's trying to buy time for uh, you know, the, the Chinese, when the Chinese want to impose new regulations, they just wake up one day and do it. In the United States, it's a little bit more of a collaborative process. You have a at least a one-year comment period from the banking community and other regulators. These things take time. We must agree and be diplomatic. 
and what have you. So Powell knows that he's talking about the summer of 2026 for true implementation. So you know, as far as he's concerned, he's buying one month at a time. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. As you said, the uh, I think they just China just came out and, and made those changes rather than this slow process of making sure the forward guidance and the market is is ready for, for that to occur. Yeah. But but again, I mean, whatever China is doing, it does appear to be very reactionary in nature and working the other way. Yeah, it's I guess it's proven to Powell's point to be even more patient with you know everything is doing and sort of slowly uh, try and communicate what what's going to happen so from your perspective it sounds like you were mentioning there that a job hasn't been created since february last year a full-time job in the u.s uh can you maybe go into that further and i guess what what do you expect then in the next in the coming months for do you think for further job losses well so we were um in 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 may excuse me in april of 2021 i guess uh we were or we were already having this uh, we were, I think at 10%, 10 plus percent year over year growth in full-time jobs. And we've now slowed to 0.6, a 0.6% rate year over year as of, uh, as of the, the January data release. If you look back to December, 2007, and that was the first month of the great recession, the recession that accompanied the fall of Lehman brothers, uh, the rate of growth of full-time jobs at the time was 0.7%. So a 10th higher than where we are today. A lot of people blame the weather. It really wasn't a weather thing. We, we went back and looked at the history to the 1970s and there wasn't anything extraordinary about this last January, even though it, it was cold. We did see a collapse in the work week. That's never a good sign. If, if the decline in the number of hours worked was to be equated to the number of jobs lost simply because of the income that was foregone because hours were cut to the extent that they were, we would have seen a print of negative 550,000. So again, um, the headlines right now are extraordinarily deceiving and other indicators such as the ADP, which we know does not necessarily predict non-farm payrolls, but we know that that 107,000 jobs created in the month of January was a pretty low number. And that by the same token, there were 103,000, more than 103,000 jobs that were uh, job cut announcements in the month of, of January that went to go offset that. So again, a lot of cross currents, um, continuing claims just surpassed the level where they were in 2019 prior to the onset of recession. They're just about at 2 million and they refuse to come down. They're very stubbornly high. Uh, so too many signposts for us to count. There was a, a, a very big services report that came out with ISM services for the month of January. Again, peel back one layer of the onion and you see that in November, there were 10 industries that were growing employment. In December, that had gone down to seven of the 18 industries tracked by the ISM that were growing employment. And that has now hit three of the 18 industries in the month of January that are still creating jobs, meaning 15 of the 18 are not. So uh, we're seeing some very rapidly changing dynamics. But again, everybody got excited because there was a pop in new orders um, exports within services went up. What does that mean exactly? That means that the, a lot of foreigners came to school in the United States and a lot of foreign tourists um, came to our shores in the month of January. So a lot of moving pieces. 
but the underlying dynamic of seven of, of 10 to seven to three industries growing their headcount is not a good sign. Yeah, so as you're saying, it seems like uh, the tightening's finally coming into play. 18 months later, as a lot of people mentioned, mentioned it would. Uh, you know how, how long it takes to permeate throughout the economy. Um, so then, from yeah, so you, you don't think that Powell even because he's set it forward that there's only going to be three, three rate cuts. If the data continues to get worse, if inflation continues to go lower, um, do you think he could make bigger cuts, or do you think no, it's just going to keep the path? Oh. Huh. If, uh, if he's going to tighten his way into a credit event, then then we will definitely see uh, a, a much looser policy coming from the Eccles building, coming from the Federal Reserve. We, we could see unusually large rate cuts the same exact way that we saw unusually large rate hikes. If, if the data continue to slow as quickly as they are, uh, we at QI Research follow a proxy for uh, headline CPI. In very short order in the last month, it's come down underneath the Fed's 2% target. It ticked down to about 1.8 a few weeks ago. And last week, it's ticked down to 1.4 where it's held. So it looks like the disinflationary powers in the economy are gaining momentum. Your downward price pressures are gaining momentum. If that trend was to continue, you could you could definitely um, see Powell being uh, shaken off of his stance of wanting to be careful and measured with quarter point rate cuts, only three of them in 2024. If inflation starts to to look like it's going, going to become deflation, then it's all bets are off. Yeah, and if we look at it, he's already made the mistake with transitory, so I don't think he'll want to make the mistake for higher for longer inflation as well. That would be a disaster from his reputation standpoint, I think. Uh Yes. It, um, actually, he said on 60 Minutes that the last thing he wants to see is deflation, but that he didn't anticipate it. So uh, that means that if he does, then there's a surprise factor and he moves quicker. Yeah. Do, do they look at this sort of forward uh, looking indicators as well? Or are they mainly looking at uh, lagging indicators? The Fed? <laughs> Uh, they officially only look at lagging indicators, but he's much more of a pragmatist, I think, than people give him credit for. And we've also seen surprise moves to the downside in the core PCE, which is the official metric that Powell follows the most closely. So uh, if that continues to come down at the pace that it's recently seen, that is the Fed's official uh, go-to metric as lagged as it is. And, and you could see you could see a shift in policy. Okay, that makes sense. Is there anything that uh, that you're watching? I guess in the uh, in the data that is quite interesting to you, or sort of unique in the in the situation that we're seeing. Well, I'm trying to follow as closely as I can uh, both the layoff cycle, the bankruptcy cycle, and what's going on in commercial real estate. And those are three areas of the economy right now that are hard to keep up with. And that certainly wasn't the case in 2022 or 2023 when they were much slower moving train wrecks, if you will. Uh, but we're you know, just just in the space of a morning, you see two companies that have north of 100 uh, million in liabilities file for Chapter 11. Uh, you see a company like Estee Lauder come out and, and announce that they're, they're going to be pushing through with layoffs of 3000 of their staff. So these, these announcements are no longer uh, small and inconsequential. And, and, and again, they're fastly moving. 
yeah, so it's keeping it on track with that. And um, yeah, commercial real estate has been another, I guess, big, big trend that people have watched in the past few years. It probably hasn't been as, you know, even though we've seen these big announcements, it hasn't been, I guess, the movement that maybe uh, as quickly as it, people were thinking. But we did see recently, I think it was last week, there have been some banks that have to, just starting to write down some of those loans. So do you think that could be sort of a catalyst for another credit event or I guess at, at least another uh, wave of uh, the Fed having to come in and sort of save some of these banks? Or what are you currently seeing there? Well, it, it certainly does give you pause. It's not so much uh, one bank in New York, uh, you know, New York Community Bank Corps, and that's a small bank. And you say, well, there's nothing systemic about that. And that's not problematic. And then you wake up the next morning and learn that there's a big bank in Japan that has got some serious losses in American uh, buildings, in American commercial real estate. That's a different, that's a different dynamic when you know, it, it's a parallel to German Landis Bank's we found out in 2008, having concentrated holdings of U.S. subprime mortgages, we said, "By you know, I didn't see that coming. You didn't see that coming, and I didn't know that that that, that this big Japanese bank was going to come out last week and say, yeah, it's our problem too.' Halfway around the world. So, I think what you're saying there is it's still sort of a bit of an unknown about you know who, who's holding the bag, I guess, and then when are they going to have to write it down? Yep. That's exactly right. And we've seen, by the way. Uh, you know, it's one thing to talk about commercial real estate holdings that are United States uh, on a Japanese bank balance sheet, but it's another to see, you know, commercial real estate in local markets. Whether you're talking about Melbourne or or Singapore or Hong Kong, uh, so it's definitely a global phenomenon that that merits monitoring very closely because it's not just. U.S. commercial real estate that appears to be deeply impaired. We know that there was speculation and and paying too much, paying too high of prices all over the world. Cheap money was a global phenomenon. Yeah, it's a good point, and I think yeah, I'm sort of living in London at the moment, one of the frothiest markets, and those are really the places where a lot of people paid maybe not for the best things, but for the sort of second and third tier properties, that's where they've paid over and they're going to really struggle to to make the returns back and going to have to take losses, I think. Yeah. And that's, so, uh, that's yeah. really where the zero bound would come in handy right now, but we're nowhere near the zero bound. We haven't even seen the first rate cut, but when it comes to a lot of these, a lot of these people that are in, in financial distress, whether it's commercial real estate or the need to refinance bonds, the zero rate, sure would be a big help right now. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like we'll uh, get there soon. So let's, if I were to put you in uh, Chair Powell's shoes as the uh, chairperson of, of the Fed, what, what actions would you take? Would you sort of continue down the line or do you think that he has to take action sooner? What are your perspectives on that? Well, I certainly would try and continue to shrink the balance sheet. Uh, as aggressively as he can without breaking something. So I would think that you could at least take another trillion dollars off the Fed's balance sheet and try and and, and continue down the path of, of normalizing the size of the Federal Reserve's footprint in the U.S. Treasury market, which had become problematic. They, they'd become too big of a player, too big of a presence. So I, I would try and maintain that particular leg of of tightening, even if if the economy dictated that it was time to start cutting back uh, the, the actual level of, of interest rates. And I think that we are seeing evidence thereof. But but again, if 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 he's looking for high for longer and if regulations and regulating the non-banking system is paramount 
to actually have something to show for uh, a Fed cycle, as opposed to coming out at the other end and slamming rates right back to the zero bound and re resuming quantitative easing. And then you wake up and then the, the non-banking market is just that much bigger and you've accomplished approximately nothing then, you know, I, I, I would do the same thing that Powell's doing and try and press forward and actually have consequences for speculation that has been taken as, as opposed to just rewarding uh, behavior that ends up costing the broader economy in the end, but yet enriching the, the biggest players in, in the private capital sector. Yep. So I guess re renewing price discovery and many of those assets, which will hopefully uh, benefit over the longer term. Yeah, that's an interesting concept, price discovery. But yes, that's the goal. Haven't seen that for a while. It's just up and up, I think, <laughs> recently. Yeah. Uh, so that, is it possible that they could cut interest rates while continuing with QT? Well, they've certainly alluded to as much. They, they've certainly said that they could um, continue to shrink the balance sheet, maybe at a, at, a, at a tempered pace compared to where they are now. And certainly if they're lowering interest rates, and that was to show up in people paying their residential mortgages off at a faster pace, then the Fed could, could allow the, the mortgage-backed securities to come off of the Fed's balance sheet while they pull back on quantitative tightening on the Treasury side and, and just say, hey, you know, we're going to play catch up. We, we want it to. We had the goal of rolling you know, $25 billion of mortgages off per month. We were not able to do that beginning of June of 2022 because mortgages were being prepaid so slowly. So we're going to catch up on that side while easing off of the Treasury side. There are a lot of different ways that the Fed can approach uh, shrinking its balance sheet if it did so as, you know, with, with as much imagination as it went into full blown crazy levels of quantitative easing, then we might accomplish something here. Yeah, I think that's what we've realized recently is that, you know, a lot of people thought it was just interest rates that they had control of. But no, they have all these tools and tools that we don't even know of yet that they're going to bring out when they need to and uh, sure. to do what they can to save the economy, reduce the balance sheet, all these all these different things. Yep. Anything's possible. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. When you have uh, <laughs> can do what you want. So if we look at, I guess, assets for 2024, it seems like it's going to be quite a difficult period. Uh, what assets are you thinking will potentially perform during this period? Well, you know, um, when you hear and see what happens when any given company cuts their dividend, you know, get out of the way. So I, I tell people that, you know, if, if, if it's important that they be or have exposure to the stock market, then they need to be choosier than just being a passive investor. They need to make sure that there's not, not even sufficient earnings but but sufficient cash flow to maintain a dividend make sure that you're that you're collecting income from that equity if that's indeed what you have to have a, a level of yield and you know if if chair Powell is going to take rates down as slowly as he says then that portion of your portfolio that's allocated to cash is going to continue to uh, to be rewarded handsomely uh, there's there's of course something to be said for uh, maintaining your gold holdings which do well in times of, of financial distress and, and then very high quality, probably short in terms of maturity, but investment grade corporate bonds. And I mean, I mean the best of the best. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess, yeah, if you look at um, 
you know the the, the high beta assets have performed recently but that's because of the that expectation of interest rates cuts and if they don't come then there could be a panic and sort of a rush for the door i guess in the short term at least and there is and we're we're also seeing critical mass in terms of the number of people who've been laid off in the white collar sector the ones who have really propelled this passive investing uh, shift away from active investing, but between the baby boomers taking distributions and just the sheer number of Americans who've lost their job and used to be very, very recently were uh, aggressively uh, pushing inflows into 401ks. You know, if that, if the combination of white collar layoffs and baby boomer distributions is such that 401k inflows reverse, well, then, you know, there might be a little bit less magnificence in the magnificent seven, so to speak, that most benefit from passive investing. Yeah, it's a great point. And I guess we've seen lots of people retiring recently as well, probably because the stock markets are high, their assets are high. So maybe if they were to, <laughs> if that were to reverse, they might have to come back into the workforce and that could put further pressure. Well, we're on, certainly on seeing a pop in the labor force participation rate for those who are, who are 55 and older, certainly. Yeah, very interesting. So, so Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my last question is, what is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Um, so, you know, uh, don't take the headlines at face value. You know, do, do the work yourself. Peel the onion back. And don't forget that when it comes to exogenous shocks and just Google it, it means something coming from the outside that you're not expecting. Uh, don't forget that we're in a, an election year and, and that can be its own game-changing element. Yeah, definitely seems like a period of time where there's always exogenous shocks and, you know, that, that are very hard to predict. So hopefully we get through, but we'll, we'll see. So, yep, Danielle, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. If anyone wanted to find out more about your work, would uh, QI Research be the best place for that? Um, QI Research, especially if you're an institutional investor or come to demartinobooth.substack.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at demartinobooth. Perfect. I'll pull out in the description below, but yep, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and click the bell icon so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.